when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there. You need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of From Hostage to Hero. Glad you're here. All right, today we're going to be talking about a concept that I think a lot of people don't understand. And that's the concept that you need to forget about building trust with jurors and instead focus on building permission. So let's talk about trust for just a moment. You know, if you look up the definition of trust, what you'll find is a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. So I just want to point out right from the beginning that if this is your goal in trial, then good luck. I mean, when we talk about, I didn't think about that word firm, a firm belief. Trust takes time. And yet you don't have the luxury of time to get jurors on board and get them on board quickly. And so what I'm going to challenge you about is to let go of this idea of trust. Trust is a bonus. It is not the goal. The goal is to get permission from jurors early and often and continue to build that throughout the course of trial. Now, You've heard me talk about the four steps of leading jurors from hostage to hero. And this is going to be in my upcoming book coming out with trial guides this fall, uh, hopefully, definitely by the end of the year. So the four steps start with safety, then engagement, then commitment, and then action. So what I mean by that is that you cannot skip levels. I mean, think about this in terms of dating. When you arrange a date, especially in today's day and age where everything is done online, the first consideration primarily for women is whether your date is safe. Okay. That's the first thing. Is this guy or gal a sociopath? Are they going to kill me? So you arrange to meet somewhere in public where if you need to, you can scream and get away. All right, so safety is the first consideration when you're dating. The second part is that you start to engage with each other. You start to date. You start to get to know each other, kind of figure out who each other are. If that goes well, then you're going to progress to commitment, where you decide you're going to be in a committed relationship. And if that goes well, then you may decide to take action, like getting married or moving in together or so on and so forth. Just like you couldn't walk into the coffee shop and drop to one knee and ask the person to marry you without them thinking you're crazy, you cannot jump levels in trial either. You have to systematically take the jurors from providing them safety because they are brought in. And if you don't uh, remember how and why jurors are hostages, go back to the first six podcasts in this series. But because they're hostages and have been brought there against their will, their primary need at the very beginning is safety. Once you provide safety, then you can move to getting them to engage in the process. That's the voir dire part where you learn about them and they learn a little bit about the principles in the case. Once they're engaged with 
what you're doing. Now you can go and get them to commit to you in your case uh, by providing them more details, giving them um, a complete picture of what the case is about. Now we're talking about opening. And you're supporting all of that, of course, through trial. But the time you get to closing, that's where jurors take action. So again, you start with providing safety. You get them engaged with the material. Because of that, hopefully some of them will commit if you've done the steps correctly, and then finally they will take action. Now, each one of those steps, you are increasing permission little by little because as you might imagine, you can't just walk into trial and ask them to find for your client. It's just, That's again, that's a skipping level type of thing. So let's define what I mean by permission. So permission is how receptive someone is to you and your message. So by getting permission and increasing permission, what you're doing is getting jurors to be receptive to you. That is the most that we can hope for, at least at the beginning. Now, the higher the permission, the more receptivity that you have, then trust starts to grow, then people start to come on board. But that's the thing about permission. You can think about permission as a sort of thermometer, okay, in terms of communication, in that When you start, you have very little permission at all, particularly because you're a trial attorney and even more so because you're a plaintiff trial attorney. Jurors think that you are there just to make a buck off your client. So your permission, if you had any, is in the toilet when you start. So therefore, you've got to get jurors receptive early, okay? Now, as you start to give jurors what they need, i.e. first you provide safety for them, permission starts to grow. So the thermometer, the communication gets a little bit warmer. I mean, think about this. When you've stood in front of that jury that's cold and hostile, it just feels freezing cold in terms of the temperature of the communication. Does it not? That's what I'm talking about. That's how communication feels when there's little permission. Think about this outside of court with people that you don't know or that you're not getting along with. The communication is stunted and cold and bitter. All right, that is a, a, a situation, an interaction that has very little or no permission. But as you start to build permission, people get more and more receptive. The communication is now going to feel more warm and inviting. Now, here's the thing you have to remember about permission, however, is that you can continually raise it, raise it, raise it, and it starts to get warm and, and, and comfortable and inviting, and then you can do something that absolutely destroys your permission. It's like opening a door and letting the cold air blast in and boom, you're back down to the bottom. So permission is not fixed. It's something that you can increase, but it's also something that you can decrease. And I want to I want you to keep that in mind as we talk about this concept of permission. So let's, let's talk a, a little bit about what permission is not. So first of all, permission is not the same thing as agreeing with you. Okay, just because you have someone's receptivity, it doesn't mean that they agree with you or your version of events. And that's really important to understand here is that what we're after in trial is to increase a juror's receptivity so that they eventually, 
will take our client's side. But it doesn't necessarily mean that right off the bat, as we get permission, they're agreeing with us. But don't worry about that so much because, again, everything happens in steps. Everything happens gradually. We can't just jump in and expect that they're going to be for us or our client. We've got to methodically increase that permission by giving jurors what they need. And therefore, hopefully, they will take our side and then take action for our client if we do this correctly. The second thing you have to remember about permission is that it is not verbal permission. When I'm talking about permission, I'm not talking about like when you were five and you had to go to your parents and say, do I have your permission to go to my, my friend's house? That's not the kind of permission that I'm talking about. Yes, we can ask for permission. And oftentimes we will get verbal permission, but we don't have permission at all. You know, I always tell the story in my seminars about being at the gym and I'm working on this workout machine and this guy comes over, you know, saunters over, makes this big display of how muscly he is. And he says, Hey, do I have your permission to tell you something or show you something? And when I tell this story, I always ask my seminar attendees, I'm like, what do you think I said? And they all just shout out, you said no. And I said, I said, yes which is so ridiculous because what he did not have my permission to show me anything. But out of politeness, I felt like I had to say yes. But he didn't have my true permission. I mean, haven't you done this in, in trial? I mean, isn't this why so many of you look at voir dire as the scariest part of trial? I think it's because of this very thing, is that even if you get past the whole awkwardness of getting jurors to talk to you, because jurors will tell you what they think you want to hear, i.e. they're giving you the idea you have permission when you don't really have it, you end up choosing a jury that you feel fairly good about only to get like, you know, totally sucker punched at the end of trial. And then you're like, what the hell? This is what I think is happening is that you are seeing what you think is permission, verbal permission. You're asking the jerk, hey, will you be honest with me? Or can you tell me about that? And they're like, I guess, or yeah, or they nod their head or so many of you, and I'm going to do a whole podcast on types of questions, but so many of you, this is a great example, use the does question. Now, what do I mean by the does question? So the does question is, is probably one of my most hated questions. And if you come through my Vaudier seminar, by the way, our Vaudier seminar for 2019 has sold out. So there are no more seats for Vaudier. We're considering adding another. If you're interested, let us know. Um, but they're all sold out. That's our most popular class. Still seats left for opening, however. And remember, there are two sides of a conversation, so you definitely need to come to both if you want to master this thing called trial. Anyway, the does question is, does anyone have a problem with that? Does anyone want to share with me about that? Does anyone have any thoughts about that? Jurors hate this question because they don't know what it means. What do you mean, do I have any thoughts about that? It also forces them to answer and isolate themselves away from the group because you're saying, does anyone, you're saying to this group, you know, who wants to tell me about that? Or, you know, does anyone have a problem giving money? For example, if someone has problems giving money, they're not going to be the one lone person to say that. And so all of them kind of shake their head like, no, that's fine. And that you've gotten that kind of verbal permission. You don't have permission. They're not really telling you the truth, but part of that, the reason they're not telling you the truth is because you're not asking the right question. You're using a does question. So what we're really after here is permission, and it's not verbal permission. It's a nonverbal thing that you can read and increase systematically. Now, before we talk about how to read permission, 
Let's talk about how permission functions. It really is a function of three very specific things. So permission is a function of need, timing, and context, and they all must work together. So here's what I mean. When you give people what they need, that increases permission. So for example, you know, if you've listened to me or followed me for a while, that I am all about giving jurors information and getting to the point as quickly as possible. Because what's the number one thing that jurors are worried about or thinking about when they're sitting there in trial? Why am I here and what do I have to do? And so when you come in with, hey, what are your hobbies? What have you been reading lately? What news programs do you watch? The jurors are like, you don't get it. Why are you asking me this? I'm not here to have a relationship with you. I'm here to figure out, first of all, how do I get out of this? But if I can't get out of this, what is it that I have to do? So when you give them that information that they're craving, remember they've been sitting there probably for hours before they even get to you, permission goes up because you've given them something they need. Now, when I think about this, I think about a story that I tell quite a bit, which is, and men stay with me, it's about purses, but it's a good story. Uh, I always say that I have a coach problem. And what I mean by that is not that I have a problem coaching people, but that I love the designer handbag coach I have for nearly 20 years probably 20 years, actually, to be exact. And so uh, one Christmas, I got a gift certificate from my in-laws, and it was for 100 bucks, which basically buys you a zipper at Coach. But I decided I would go down to the Coach outlet to see if I could get a deal on a purse, and I grabbed my best friend, Rachel, and here we went down to the coast. That was where the only outlet was at the time. And we come into the Coach store, and we just go and walk along the perimeter, and we're just picking up every purse that halfway looks decent. And by the time we got all the way around the store, I probably had 20 purses hung over my shoulders and Rachel probably had 15. And so we dropped them on the table and I see this bewildered salesperson and I call her over and I said, I need a purse, Uh, go. And she's like, oh, okay. So she starts picking through the pile and going, well, this one, the strap isn't adjustable. And I'd say, well, I don't want that one. She's saying this one, you know, it's a zipper versus buttons and I don't want that one. And so finally we'd weeded it down to three purses and none of us can make a decision. Not her, not me, not Rachel. And so I, I, out of frustration, I say to the salesperson, what do you do when you need to make a decision about a purse? And without hesitation, she turns and points and she says, I ask her. And so I turn and look where she's pointing, and she's pointing at this salesperson who has her arms crossed. I thought she was a security guard, quite frankly. She wasn't talking to anybody. She had this scowl on her face. Well, she sees us point over to her, and so she walks over, doesn't unfold her arms, doesn't make eye contact. I look up at her, and I say, I'm trying to decide on one of these three purses. What do you suggest? And so she looks at the purses. Again, not look at me. She looks at the purse that I came in with. And then she points to one of the purses and she says, that one. Now, what do you think I did? I bought the purse. I mean, (laughs) this salesperson did everything wrong, quote unquote, in terms of how salespeople should act. You know, we've all been trained. Salespeople should be friendly. But I didn't need a friendly person that day. I needed somebody to make a decision. And when somebody showed up in that way, she had immediate permission with me. 
Don't get caught up in what you've been taught or what you think or how we've been socialized. When you really get at what do people need and you give it to them, that's when permission goes up. Jurors at the beginning need you to get to the point. They need to get, you need to provide safety by telling them what they're there to do and how they're going to do it. And when you do that, you get permission because you are meeting a major need of theirs. Now, having said that, you also have to be careful about timing and context. You know, so I think back to the gym. The gym just seems to be a hotbed of permission trouncing individuals. But I remember being on one of the ellipticals and I had my headphones in, but I was watching this guy. He had a red t-shirt on, trainer on the back, and he was going up and approaching people in the middle of their workouts. And what I'm assuming asking them if he could help or offer them some personal training services. And what I could also tell was that he was absolutely having no luck. Now, when you look at this, you think, well, what's the problem? I mean, he had the need right, okay, in terms of these were people, it was January, they're in a gym, they're there to, you know, get the best body possible. They're all about health and fitness. He had the context right. He was in a gym, But what he didn't have right was timing, and that's why he didn't have permission. No one, absolutely no one, wants to be interrupted in the middle of a workout. And when you don't have all three, that's when permission doesn't work. I mean, think about this in trial. Yes, jurors want information, and they want to know what the case is about, but the, we often try to do that in the wrong context, meaning voir dire is a time to ask questions. It's not a time to give information. Now, if you've, again, followed me, you know that I create what we call an issue-oriented voir dire, where we do get to talk about the principles in the case, which really does help a juror fill the need. But in terms of giving them all the details, voir dire is the wrong context. So it's the right need uh, information. It's the right timing, but it's the wrong context. So you have to have all three working together in order to build a permission with jurors. So we'll talk more about permission as we go through all the other uh, podcasts. What I want you to remember today is that permission is nonverbal. It's something that you have, and it's not something that people or don't have, and it's not something people tell you verbally. And that it can go up and down depending, it's not fixed, and that it is something that you can create or increase by meeting people's needs at the right time and in the right context, okay? Now, the question then becomes, how do I know if I have permission? It reminds me of when I was speaking at uh, Take Back the Courtroom, and a person in the audience said, how close should we stand to the jury? And I said, hmm... Three and a half feet. I don't know. I mean, everyone (laughs) laughed. I mean, the point is, is that depending on the jury, some juries you have tons of permission with and you can sit in their lap and other juries want you to stay 10 feet away. So the only primary indicator of permission is breathing. And you might think, well, how the heck can I tell how people are breathing? Well, there are nonverbal indicators. First, let's talk about those. So you know that people have stopped breathing. What I mean by stop breathing is they're holding their breath, okay? And that means that you don't have permission. And here's why, by the way, that means you don't have permission. If someone has stopped breathing, meaning they are holding their breath, that immediately activates their sympathetic nervous system, which means that throws them into fight or flight, okay? When you cut off the oxygen supply, 
your body immediately goes into fight or flight and it goes into survival mode and you literally go spontaneously deaf. You cannot listen to anyone or anything except for your own internal stuff, your own internal processing. How do I get out of this? Where do I go? What do I do? Obviously, people are not receptive, which is our definition of permission, if they're in fight or flight and have gone deaf to what you're saying. So that's why we know that when people have stopped breathing, that you've lost permission, either temporarily or long-term. So when someone has, uh, try this right now. If you take a sharp in- inhale of breath and then hold it, you'll notice some things non-verbally happen that you can observe in your jury. First of all, the shoulders will go up, okay? The head will kind of jerk back. I'm kind of doing it right now as I'm, I'm talking about it. And the body will appear stiff instead of still, now, if this happens while you're speaking to a juror, the juror who's speaking has and you've lost permission with will have trouble finding words. They'll be like, uh, um, I, the, that kind of thing. That will also tell you that they've they've stopped breathing or have are having trouble breathing. And so that can tell you a lot about permission. So for example, if you're standing in front of the jury and you say, and in this case, we're going to be asking for $10 million and the whole jury goes, <gasps> you know, you've lost permission. Now, that's not necessarily something you should freak out about. It's just information. It's just data. There are ways to get around that. We'll talk about that in future podcasts. It's just right now, I want you to be noticing these things. Notice them outside of court. Notice when you're conversing with someone, if their body language suddenly gets stiff. And so, and here's the other thing that non-nonverbal, meaning the internal piece, is if you feel like something's off, if it feels like the air has been sucked out of the room, if it feels like something just shifted, all of us can tune into this. It's just that most of you are not aware of it, so you're not even thinking about it. Start getting good at reading what's happening in the space. That will tell you a lot too. If you feel that something's off, most likely permission has shifted. So again, I'm hoping through these podcasts and, and the trainings that we're putting together um, for our online course that's going to be coming out, to help you continue to learn how to increase permission and read it and work with it and shape it. But just know that permission is the ingredient that you need in order to move jurors from hostage to hero. Because to get them from safety, for example, to engagement, and to get them from engagement to commitment, and to get them from commitment to action absolutely requires that you increase permissions methodically and systematically. Meaning if you cannot get jurors to take action when you have very little permission with them. So you've got to continue to work on this permission and build this kind of bank account with jurors so that when you finally get to the ask, you've built enough permission that they are willing to say yes at that point. Get rid of thinking that this is about trust. It's about permission. And permission is something that you can get easy and quick and build on if you are in tune with nonverbal communication, which is what our next podcast is going to be about. How the nonverbal level of communication is what can really help you build permission. It's not about what you say, it's about what you do. So tune in to that one next week. All right, you guys, that's all I've got for you this week. Have a great week. If you haven't joined our From Hostage to Hero Facebook group yet, you can do that um, by going to Facebook and looking up From Hostage to Hero uh, and uh, join our Sorry Delamont coaching consultant page at the same time. Go ahead and go ahead and give us a like. If you go to sorrydlm.com backs or think forward slash OSS, that will get you to the registration page for opening statement studio. We have a few seats left. Would love to see you in Portland in July. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, everybody. That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. 
but head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sorry Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sorry's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today, and until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.